Good morning, church. It's so great to see all of you guys here. I'm surprised so many of you here. Congratulations for being here, for braving it. Um, I do know that there's a lot of you worshiping from home this morning, given the weather, and um, I know of at least two or three different parish groups that are all gathering in a living room this morning with coffee and donuts and pajamas, and but you guys wish you were there, but I'm glad you're not. I'm glad you're here with us. Um, this month, as we talked a little bit about last week, we are doing what we do every January, and that is to um, take a fresh look at our vision statement as a church, which is simple. We're called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. Called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. And so every January, we take a fresh look at that, and we try to do a deep dive into one particular aspect of that vision. And this month, we're focusing on how God renews people. How do people change? How do ordinary people like you and me actually partner with God in the process of change? Um, Along with the the four sermons in this series, we're releasing in our podcast one different story a week. So four stories of change of individuals in our congregation who in their own journey with Jesus have sought to partner with him and have experienced a measure of change even as God continues to change them. Last week, um, we heard a snippet of Mary Damon's story, and I think probably about 400 of you I saw this morning listen to her story this week, and I know a lot of folks were affected by that. So um, this week, I just uh, our story this week is the story of our friend Stephen Jenkins. Um, Stephen's been a covenant partner here for a long time and um, been a dear friend of mine for about, what, 13 years, 13, 14 years, Stephen? And so we're just going to hear a snippet of Stephen's story, and then the full podcast will drop probably tomorrow that you can listen to the whole thing. So let's hear a portion of Stephen's story. I, I believe love pursued me. I believe those years of me acting out what I thought. I, I remember telling my mother, if God has a problem with me, tell him to leave me alone. Hmm. Because I'm not tracking him. He's tracking me. But like the great song that says, oh, love that will not let you go, God pursued me. Um, and won me over um, with his love. Through people, I need to say something, there were people all along the way who knew that I was struggling in different ways um, and who extended love to me and acceptance um, without judgment. Hmm. Um, I often say that the way to get a bone away from a dog is to offer him a steak, and sometimes that steak is community. Sometimes that steak is the cross. Sometimes that stake is the lack of judgment, because only God can change the heart of people. Um, I got to the point where uh, having my way was empty and, and miserable. Um, I, I've been there. I've um, had long-term relationships. You know, I believe it's Augustine who says that our hearts are made for God and we'll be restless until. And so I know to some degree what I'm talking about from a vantage point of not a wanting, but having been there. Um, Having had everything I thought I wanted and realizing that it was nothing. Um, The grace of God is that when you raise your hand and yell, uncle, God is right there. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we do thank you for Stephen's story. Thank you that you have pursued him relentlessly over the years, even when he was running hard away from you. And we thank you that that is all of our story, 
that all of us are here because of grace. And I pray that as we go deeper into Colossians chapter 3, that you would help us uh, to understand what you want to do in our lives. I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit now um, upon me and upon all of us, that we would not just hear your word today, but that we would be changed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we just jumped right in to say that God is in this business of renewal and that that renewal begins with us. Uh, God loves to do this. He loves to take men and women, boys and girls who have been shattered by the fall. Remember that image of the sculpture last week? And like that great craftsman, he loves to take men and women and begin piecing us back together again. And last week, we looked at the fact that the main way that God does that is through our union with Christ. Remember that? That when a person becomes a Christian, when someone confesses Jesus Christ and puts their trust in him, something truly supernatural happens, that God connects that person to Jesus Christ, and so that these two things now become true of you, that you are in Christ, you have a new identity in him, but also it means that Christ is in you, that through the Holy Spirit, deposit in you, you now have the person of Jesus living in you, therefore you have a new power to live out this new identity. Now today, we just got, we really want to lay down that principle last week, but today what we're really going to do is try to get into the, to the deeper practice of becoming more and more of who we already are. I actually had a couple of really great people respond to me last week to the sermon that said, look, I'm a little nervous about what you're saying. But it sounds like, you know, you just trust in Jesus and playing like you're a different person. And I want to be clear that that is not what I was saying last week. What I was trying to do is lay down the groundwork of our new identity and the new power that we have in Christ. But today we're really going to get into what becomes the long process of subjective change in response to the objective fact of our salvation. Does that make sense? If you could just sum up Paul's mantra of personal change that I think he lays down in all of his letters, you could say it's this become who you are. Can we say that together? Become who you are. That's basically Paul's mantra of change. Become who you are. Become more and more of the person who you already became when you trusted in Christ. I know that sounds confusing. Uh, let me try to illustrate it a couple of ways. Um, first for you kids who, love, who might have read and loved Harry Potter. Um, you know, in the first Harry Potter book, The Sorcerer's Stone, um, Harry Potter is, uh, you know, he's born this amazing wizard, but he doesn't know it. And for the first 10 years of his life, he lives with this family of ordinary muggles um, called the Dursleys. Remember that? And he has no idea that he has all this power. He has no idea he has this identity as one of the most famous wizards in the world. And on his 11th birthday, who shows up? You remember? Hagrid. Hagrid shows up. And Hagrid the giant shows up and he says to Harry, Harry, you're a wizard. And Harry's like, what? Me? Yes, you. And he has to convince him that he is this person, that he has this power, that he has this identity. And basically the whole book is Harry learning to become what he already is. Does that make sense? And so this is an analogy for the Christian life, that we become... We learn to become what we already are, not by birth, but by rebirth and the renewal through the Holy Spirit. We increasingly become what we already are. And just like Harry, that takes learning 
and practice. Here, here's another illustration, maybe, maybe more for you adults. Some of you adults who've been married know what I'm talking about, that when you take on the new identity of being a married person, you really have to learn to become a married person. You have to set behind your old identity as a single person and become a newly married person. This is a difficult, especially for men. Is it not, men? Um, let, me, let me tell you what happened when we got married. So before I got married, I lived in London with a roommate, um, and he was a great guy. I lived with him for several years, or a couple years. And, but about six months, the, the lease of the apartment was to me, and so about six months before we got married, I said, Michael, I'm really sorry, but it's, you know, getting married uh, in six months, and so you, you, you've got you to leave. You've got to find a new apartment. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. I'll do that. Um, so uh, it gets closer, 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 you know. I'm getting nervous. Keep reminding him he's got to find a place to live. You know, by early December, though, thankfully, he says, okay, I've, I've, I worked it out. I've got a place to live. When you guys get back from the honeymoon, early January, um, I'll, I'll be gone. Great. So Sarah and I, we got married December 29th, 2000. We go away on our honeymoon. Come back. Open the apartment door. There's Michael. <laughs> he's like, oh, dude, sorry. <laughs> you know, it just, you know, the thing fell through. So Sarah and I spent the first several months of our marriage with a roommate, Michael. Now, some of you women are like, oh, my Lord, your wife is a saint. She is indeed, friends. And single men who might be planning to get married, do not do this. <laughs> do not do this. Because, see, you cannot live as a married man with your old single roommates. You just can't do it. You have a new identity as a married man, and you have to live your new life putting behind what was of the old. You have to become increasingly what you became on your wedding day. So I am, right now, I've been married for 19 years. I am no less married right now than I was on December 30th, 2000. And yet over 19 years, I have learned to become what I became. I'm still a husband. I became that day one. But I have increasingly learned to become a husband. I've learned to become someone who is bound to another in union with another. I have learned to become what I became. Are you all tracking with me? Okay, so this is Paul's vision of personal change, that to, be, to grow as a Christian means that you become a new person day one by conversion in union with Christ, but over time you learn to become what you became. And that takes, what does that take? Practice. It takes a whole lot of practice and a whole lot of learning. So what Colossians 3 is essentially about, it's, it's about practices. What are, the, what are the habits? Just like, you know, if you're training for an athletic game, there's several, a regimen of practices that you have to go through to become the elite athlete that you want to be. So with Christian identity, with Christian change, there's practices that you can engage in to become what you, bec what you already are in Christ. Okay, what are some of those practices? Well, look, look with me at the text. Okay, will you pull out... Colossians 3. We're going to talk about a few. Oh, before we do that, something very important. I have to tell you something very, very important, okay? It is vital that we understand this because it's so, whenever you talk about growing and attacking sin in your life and working on issues of personal character and becoming a more obedient follower of Jesus, you always can be tempted to slide into moralism and legalism, okay? And there are, there's a lot of places where people that you may have been wounded by such things, by such legalistic preaching. And I want to be clear that Paul 
is preaching the exact opposite of religion. For Paul, life change is a result of grace, not a condition for grace. You hear what I'm saying? For Paul, life change is a result of grace, not a condition for grace. If you could say very simplistically, I know, but the traditional message of religion is this. If you live a new life, then God will save you. If you clean up your life, if you pull your act together, if you work on the, the icky and disobedient places of your life and start reading the Bible and coming to church and being a good person, then you will have God's acceptance, then God will save you. This is the traditional message of religion and morality. The reason why religion and morality will never change you is because you can't do something new until you are something new. You can't do something new until you are, and that's why it's the exact opposite of the message of the gospel, which is God has saved you, therefore live a new life. Grace comes first, change comes first, transformation comes first, new, new power comes first, and all life change is a response to grace, not a condition for it. It is vital you understand that, that as you seek to grow and become a more obedient follower of Jesus, you are not earning anything, you're not trying to deserve anything, you're not trying to climb a ladder, you, you are no more close and accepted by God on day a thousand than you are on day one with Jesus, you are simply responding to grace to become increasingly what you are. God has saved you, therefore live a new life. Does everyone understand that, y'all? Okay, it's vital that we understand this, okay? takes practice. So let's talk about a few of the practices that Paul talks about in Colossians 3. Let's first look at practice one, which is set your minds. And this is really the one I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on today. So look with me at the text. Paul says, since then, you've been raised with Christ, set your minds, sorry, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Listen, our brains are very, very powerful. Obviously, we know that. But even in the last 10 years, there has been this surge of neuroscience research that has demonstrated just how powerful our thinking is in determining even our biology. And so um, here is a quote from an article that I tried to read this week in the journal um, Nature and Neuroscience. Um, and the author's basically, this is, I'll just read it to you, okay? It says, neural circuit perturbations and early formation of the brain can give rise to pathological anxiety and thereby produce a fixed roadmap for future brain development. Okay. Let me try to translate that. Now, let me, please understand, I have no idea what I'm talking about, Okay. <laughs> But as far as I can tell from the couple of books that I've read about this in neuroscience, this is what this means, okay? So our brains are made up of pathways. They're called neural pathways. And when you have a thought, I'm looking a lot at Dr. Armistead here. <laughs> if you start going like this, I'll just stop talking, okay? So, um, so every time you have a thought, it basically runs down what's called a neural pathway, like little pathway in your brain. And when you have that same thought over and over and over again, it becomes a pattern of thinking, then what can happen is that pathway becomes a road and that road can become a boulevard and that boulevard can become a highway, right? And so what happens is by the time that we're adults and we have had a fixed pattern of thinking for many, many years, we essentially have created a roadmap of highways in our brain. Our biolo the biological structure of our brains have actually been determined by the patterns of our thinking. Does that make sense? 
So someone who is an adult who has a pathological issue with anxiety and you'd actually take their brain and examine it and see that it's wired for anxiety, it could very well be that that person is, was never actually born with a wiring for anxiety, but some early perturbation, some issue of trauma, something that their parents did to them. Something happened which set off a pattern of thinking which then created a highway which determined the new reality, the structure of their brain. And that, that new structure becomes part of their biology, be part even of their genetics that they can now hand down to their offspring. That's how powerful our thinking is. It can actually determine our reality changing our brains. Are y'all with me? Are y'all following me here? Some of you are like, what are you talking about, preacher? So here's, here's what I'm saying. Paul, without really knowing anything about neuroscience, is telling us, use your minds to create a new superhighway in your brain. Use your minds to create a new highways of thinking in your brain that are aligned with the reality of who you now are in Christ. Another Paul, uh, one of my favorite Christian authors named Paul Tripp says this, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. And so all day long, whether you know it or not, you're having this conversation with yourself inside your head, right? You might be talking to your, you're interpreting, you're organizing, you're analyzing what's going on inside of you. You might be talking about why you feel so tired. You might be talking about what a jerk that person is, that they keep doing this to you. You might have woke up this morning feeling sad, and you're talking about, to yourself about why. You might have had some fleeting memory go through your head of an experience that happened a few years ago, and you're trying to figure out why that happened. Maybe you were surprised at how angry you got at a conversation with a colleague at work, and you're talking to yourself about that. Perhaps you're reliving a conversation that went really badly in your mind. So, so all the time, you're having this internal conversation in your head, and the point is, is that that is creating these habits of thinking, which are in turn creating roads and boulevards and highways in your brain. And the question is, what do you regularly tell yourself about yourself that it actually is helping determine your reality that you live? What do you tell yourself about God? What do you tell yourself about circumstances? Do your words to yourself encourage faith and hope and courage? Or do your words to yourself stimulate doubt, suspicion, discouragement and fear? Do you remind yourself that you are safe and that God is near and he provides all things? Or do you remind yourself through your anxious thoughts that given your circumstances, God must be distant or aloof or doesn't like you and your life is up to you? Do your internal conversations help you live into the truth of your new identity or do they keep you stuck in the old? Paul says in this constant internal dialogue you have with yourself, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. He's not saying don't think about your bills or your kids or your car or your job. He means let your identity, your sense of self be determined by the one in heaven, Christ, where your life now is. Ephesians 4, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What we say to ourselves, what we focus on, where we have our minds fixed has a powerful impact on helping us become this new person that God wants us to be. You can actually rewrite your neural pathways to help you live out your new identity in Christ. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. Can I get an amen? You hear that, friends? Okay, let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, I'm sorry I'm talking a lot about psychology today, but I'm interested in this stuff and I got some time, okay? So um, 
There's something in cognitive behavioral therapy called keeping a dysfunctional thought record. I knew about this because I actually went through cognitive behavioral therapy myself for some junk in my own life, okay? So I'm just being honest and vulnerable here, okay? There's something that happens in cognitive behavioral thought therapy where you can actually begin to follow the trigger of a pattern of a thought in your brain that triggers emotion and behavioral dysfunction, okay? So what you do is you actually sort of write this down on a piece of paper and you say, okay, what is the triggering event? There's something that keeps happening that in turn creates a negative emotion or dysfunctional behavior in my life. It could be like a situation you're in, a meeting you have regularly. It could be a conversation that you have. A physical place might produce a trigger, an event, maybe even a person could be a trigger. And what you have to ask is what happens to me when this trigger occurs? I feel this anxiety. Fear shoots through me, right? There's a deep sadness that comes over me. I get really angry. I feel shame. I feel disgust, right? So you have to actually identify the trigger and then see what is the negative emotion that is produced when that trigger occurs. And then here's the difficult thing. You actually have to try to put a thought, an associated thought quote to that emotion. It might not be that you are actually thinking consciously that thought quote, but it's likely that it is under the surface subconsciously driving and fueling that emotion. So you might be thinking, for example, I can't do this, or I really am out of control and I need to seize control, or I'm failing at this, or I'm alone, or I'm worthless, or he's worthless, or you know, there's no hope here. So for me, you know, um, hey, let's just be real, okay? So um, I found that uh, there were certain meetings or certain situations where I was walking in where I was having high levels of anxiety that were spiking in me. And then what would often happen is, is that I would then, that would trigger really dysfunctional behavior in my life. I would really just kind of escape. I would, I would just like be really detached from my family. I would get easily impatient and angry with them. Um, I would just like retreat to Netflix or Instagram, you know, scrolling or something. And so what I saw and what my counselor enabled me to see was that this dysfunctional behavior in my life was being triggered by a negative emotion that was being fueled by a lie. That I'm alone, that I'm going to fail, that I can't face this, and that I've got to handle this myself. Does that make sense? And so in cognitive behavioral therapy, what they, what they encourage you to do is to actually replace the negative thought with an alternative thought. And this is where I... I honestly think that positive psychology reaches its limits because there's only so many positive thoughts that you can have without God in the picture. And so I can tell myself, I'm okay. Well, what if you're not? I can tell myself, everything's going to be fine. Well, what if it isn't? I can tell myself, oh, I'm in control. Usually you're not. Um, but as Christians, this is where we actually have, this becomes a really powerful tool because scripture itself actually presses us to know what is most true about our situation, even when we subjectively are having a hard time believing it. So you can actually take things that are deeply true, like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or his grace is sufficient for me, even as I walk into this meeting, or my life is hidden with Christ and God, or I don't need the approval of these other people because I am already fully righteous in Christ, or whatever it may be. And that's why I think Paul says in um, Colossians 3.16 in our text, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, because he knows that the power of the word of God is to shape and reshape our dysfunctional thought patterns so that we can actually begin to believe the things that are actually objectively most true about us. But do you see, this takes great practice. I didn't just sort of become a new person overnight, and I certainly am not. Still, I'm very much still in the process, just as Sarah. But it takes a whole lot of new travel on this new highway because some of those old highways were built a long time ago. 
Does that make sense? And let me also say, sometimes you can't do this on your own. Sometimes a negative pattern of thinking and then as an associated dysfunctional behavior in your life has been so rooted because of something that your parents did to you or because of a trauma that occurred or even because the DNA that you were given is that it actually, you have to work, it actually takes another person to help you. It takes a psychologist, it takes a counselor, or a therapist, it takes a 12-step program, maybe even takes medicine because there's something biochemical involved. And there's a lot of preachers and teachers who maybe have hurt you in the past who say, oh, you should never use a counselor or medicine because that's not relying on Jesus. That's not trusting the power of the Spirit. Hogwash. Jesus created those people and he created, he gave us these tools. I have made use of them myself. And what all of this is about the community helping each other in this process of change as we work to set our minds now on what is most true. So set your minds. Be who you are. Live into what is already true. Try it this week. Just try it. Try it with one dysfunctional thought pattern in your life. When you are anxious, say to yourself, I am forgetting I'm a child of God and that I have a father who orders all things for my good. Set your mind on things above. I have a father who knows what I need. When you are feeling worthless or rejected, say to yourself, what am I doing seeking to prove myself through how good I am by my performance? Am I not forgetting that all I have in Christ, I have the inheritance of heaven, I am a child of the king? When you are feeling depressed or hopeless, say to myself, am I not forgetting that I am in union with Jesus? I am raised with him. I have resurrection in store. I have a hope in a future. Set your minds on things of Christ. I have all that I ever need in him. You see, that takes practice. Set your mind, set your mind, set your mind. And increasingly you find that new highways are being built. You got a new roadmap. You're becoming who you are. Are you all following anything I'm saying? Yeah, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure. Okay, so that's, that's, that's the first practice. Set your mind, set your mind. Okay, the second that Paul talks about is put off and put on. Let's, let's look at uh, verses 5 through, um, I'm going to read 5 through 11. Okay, look with me at the text. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's serious, right? You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you also must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but God is all and is in all. Let's keep going. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So note that Paul is using uh, this illustration of clothing. Did you, did you catch that? Put on, put off, put on, put on. You know, a few months ago, I was speaking, um, I was at one of the keynote speakers at a, a special event that was happening in the evening. And in the afternoon, I was at one of my girls' soccer games. And, you know, the, I knew that the game would end early enough. I would have plenty of time to go back home, change, put on my suit and tie, because it was a very fancy evening, and then, and then go to speak at this thing. Well, anyway, unfortunately, it was bad weather, and the game kept getting postponed and postponed and postponed, until finally, it was at the place where the game was ending, and I could not actually get home. I had to go straight to this thing. And so I, you know, I, I sped there in my car, and I was on the phone with Sarah, telling her, like, grab this side, grab the tie, grab the suit jacket, Telling her, meet, you got to meet me here, I'm, and I was already late to the thing as it was. 
And so I get there, full house, 400 people, everybody's in suit and tie, I'm standing in the back like this, <laughs> you know? And it is just like, it's like 10 minutes before I have to get up. And I'm waiting and waiting and I'm watching where Sarah is using Find My iPhone on the app on my phone, like <laughs> watching her tracking, like getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And finally, at the last second, I see her pull in. Literally, I put the clothes on. It's my turn. I walk straight up. That's how close it was. So <laughs> clothing is actually important to represent our roles, our identity. It mirrors kind of who we are. When your identity changes, you gotta put off some clothing and put on new. You know, if I walk down to the army office after this and join the military, I would take off the civilian clothes and I would put on a uniform. You know, if I join the postal service, I take off this, put on that. If I become a doctor, I take off this, put on that. If I become a coach, take off this, put on that, right? Paul says, you are new. You have a new identity in Christ. So you are now called to put off an old way of life and put on a new, which now reflects the new identity that is yours. So in this whole section, he's laying out all the old ways of life that he wants us to put off and inviting us the new ways that he wants us to put on. So put off lies, put on truth, right? Put off stealing, put on giving. Put off bitterness, put on forgiveness, put off sexual immorality, put on purity, put off anger, put on patience put off envy, put on gratitude. We're called to all these things, not because we're trying to be good people, right? Remember the equation of the gospel? But because we're trying to be who we already are. We're trying to wear clothing that befits our new identity. And I love what Paul says in verse nine. He says, do not lie to each other, seeing that you have put off the old self and put on the new. Isn't that fascinating? What's, we, often tell, we often tell our children, don't lie. We don't lie in our family, we say. Good people like us don't lie. Or in the business school, you know, you guys who good on MBAs and stuff, what they say, say lying's bad for business, lying's impractical, don't do it. You know, we tell each other to not lie for a lot of moralistic reasons. Why does Paul tell us not to lie? Because we're new. He says, don't lie because it's not you anymore. I'm, you're free. I don't have to exaggerate. I don't have to make up things. I don't have to try to put myself in a better light. Why? Because I already know who I am. I am fully approved by God. I have the applause of heaven. I don't need to exaggerate. I don't need to pretend like I'm someone I'm not. I don't have to lie anymore because I'm already full in Christ. I am in him. He is in me. Do you know the story about Augustine uh, who famously, before he became a Christian and then a Christian bishop, was a, lived quite a wild life and had many sexual affairs. He was actually a sexual addict. But after he became a Christian, he put off, he put off his old self and one time he was walking in the street and one of his lovers saw him across the street and he said, Augustine, it is me. And Augustine turned and he said, I know, but it is not me. It is not me. And that's the call of the Christian, that we are not the same person that we were before. So why would we continue to go on living this new life? After you've been made old, New, why would you be old? If you've been set free from prison, why would you return to the cell? If you've been given a fortune, why would you live homeless on the streets? If you know the magic, why would you live as a muggle? You know what I'm saying? We have been made new. We belong to Jesus. Now live as the people that he has made us to be. And this takes hard work. It doesn't happen overnight. That's why I love this, this habit that Paul is talking about of clothing, putting off and putting on, putting off and putting on. And just like any habit or practice, it's something that you learn and that eventually must come habitual. So when my, you know, when your kids, when you're teaching your kids how to get dressed in the morning, 
You know, it's, it's very conscious and intentional, is it not? You're like, okay, see this big hole? See this big hole? That goes over your head. And the little holes, you put your arms through that. And it's either, no, 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 both of your legs are through the pant leg. Let's take one of those out and put it in the other one. And, you know, getting dressed when you're little, it, it requires a whole lot of choice, intentionality, and very conscious dedication. But, you know, fast forward 20 years, you know, when your teenage daughter or young adult daughter comes down the stairs at breakfast and she's fully dressed, you don't say, oh, honey, I'm so proud of you. Right? That's absurd. Why? Because what was began as an intentional, deliberate practice has become a subconscious, habitual action. And so that's what happens in the Christian life. Paul says, set your minds, put off, put on, do this over and over again, and you find yourself increasingly becoming the person that you already are, where you're not just what begins with great intention, purity over sexual immorality, generosity over Greed. You know, these things begin with sometimes great conscious deliberateness and you a lot of failure, right? But over time, what began as an intentional uh, commitment to do something with great conscious care becomes an unconscious habit that actually is part of who you now are. Become who you are. More about that next week when Justin Early preaches on habits. Okay, So finally, the last practice, Paul says, set your minds, put off and put on, and do all of this in community. Mark, I don't know why this slide doesn't work, but just if you could pop up that last one, that'd be good. Let's read um, the final section, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Note how deeply communal this whole passage is. Every single time Paul says you, see all these times it says you? That's the second person plural in the Greek. That's y'all. So you want to do something interesting? Go back and read this whole passage. It says, so then, since y'all have been raised with Christ, set y'all's hearts on things above not on earth to think. You know, y'all used to walk in these ways, but now y'all also must rid yourself, etc. You know, this is a deeply communal passage, which is a vision of corporate change. It's practicing change together as a community. Derek will talk in depth about this in two weeks on how community, God uses community to change us. But let me just mention two very quick things. First of all, we see from this passage that we are called to challenge each other. Do you see what Paul says here in verse 16? He says, as you teach and admonish. Admonish is a word that means rebuke or to call out or call back from. Admonish. I think that one of the main reasons why people don't change is because they don't need, know what needs to be changed. They're blind to the areas in their life that need the most changing. You know, your worst character flaws are the ones that you can't see. Your worst character flaws are the ones that you are blind to and that you tend to minimize and that you tend to make excuses for. And so you've got to, you, and sometimes you need trusting, loving people in your life in vulnerable relationships to be able to tell you in a way that wants change for the good of God, 
who are able to tell you what you cannot actually see in your own life. There's this, episode, this old episode of Seinfeld um, where George and, and uh, Jerry are talking about the fact that Elaine is a horrible dancer. She's like, she, she she's dances at this wedding reception and she makes a total fool of herself, right? And they cannot bring themselves to tell her what a terrible dancer she is because they know it will just like wreck her life because <laughs> she thinks she's an awesome dancer. And so finally, because they love her, what do they do? They play her the tape. They play her the, the tape that someone took on a video camera of her dancing and she is horrified. But ultimately, because she sees what a terrible dancer she is, but ultimately she is grateful because her friends loved her enough to play the tape. So friends, do you love your friends enough, your good, dear friends, to play them the tape? Sometimes that has to be, happen. And, the, and frankly, you can only be prepared to receive that from someone, first of all, if they are a loving and trusting person and are doing it because they love you, not because they're trying to hurt you. But second, because you are deeply secure in your new identity in Jesus and that you are so deeply rooted in him that you're your sense of self is no longer bound up into what this person thinks of you and criticism doesn't phase you the way that it used to and you are actually able to receive the feedback of another person because you actually want to partner with God for the work of change in your life. Okay, so we've got to teach and admonish one another and then finally encourage each other. He says, encourage each other with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He says, what one of our jobs is to remind each other what is true. It is so difficult sometimes to remember what is true by yourself. Sometimes you need a brother and you need a sister to remind you what is most true, to say to you, hey, you are not worthless. You are worthy of God's love so much that Jesus gave his life for you. You are not alone. I love you. God loves you. The whole Trinity loves you. You are not this angry, suspicious, cynical person. You are new. You are not this insecure, fragile person. God has made you new through Jesus. Just like those, that paralyzed man needed his three friends to take him to Jesus because he could not get there himself. Sometimes you need your friends to get you to Jesus because you just can't get there yourself. You need your friends, your spiritual family to remind you of who you are in Jesus and who you now can become because you are in him and he is in you. So here's my point. We become more fully ourselves, not just in union with Jesus, but also in communion with others. The more you are known, the more others know you, the more you can be reminded of who you are in loving, trusting community, the more you can become who you became in Christ. So here's what we talked about today, how people change. And we, let me just sum it up this way. Here's how people change according to the Bible. First of all, through a conclusive, supernatural experience of union with Christ. That in trusting with Jesus, something objective and supernatural occurs in which you are connected to Jesus Christ and you are in Christ and he is in you. That is conclusive, immediate, and permanent. You have a new identity and a new power and that is an objective fact. But secondly, the subjective process and experience of change is very gradual. It takes a really long time. As my friend Brian Lortz puts it in God's kitchen, there are no microwaves, only crockpots. God only does the process of slow change. Change takes a long time, and what does it take? It takes our intentional partnership with God, 
being willing to have others speak into our lives and to deal with the ickiest, dirtiest, most difficult stuff that we don't want to face in our lives, and being willing to partner with God in setting our minds on Jesus, putting off and putting on, and doing all of this in the context of Christian community. And slowly, you find that you are becoming who you are. You find yourself being restored. Sometimes it feels like nothing is happening, that you're the same old person that you've always been. Sometimes you wonder, gosh, is the Holy Spirit even doing anything in me anymore? And yes, he is. My friend Rankin says, the Christian life is like walking upstairs while playing with a yo-yo. You know, there's a whole lot of ups and downs, but you're always going up. You're always going up. And because you're going up, because you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and Christ will not fail. He will never fail. And he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So look to him, find your life in him, and every day begin again. Begin again. So let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you do want to change us. Um, And we admit that we wish it could be more immediate, um, more quick, where we would experience some dramatic personal transformation overnight, but we know that's just not what happens. Very rarely that happens. And that more what happens is we begin to, just like Harry, um, just like um, me learning to become more and more of a husband, all of us become more and more of what we became when we trusted in Christ. So first of all, I pray that there's anyone here that really wants to change but has never experienced that union with Jesus. I pray that today that they would have the humility to say to him, Lord, I cannot change on my own, and I need union with you to experience the change that you want to bring. And second, for all of us who do know Christ and who are in union with him, I pray that we would do the very deliberate and patient work of setting our minds, of putting off and putting on, and doing this all in the context of community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.